Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. I'd certainly like to thank Empire for arranging this. This is a magnificent uh, program uh, that has been arranged and certainly something that you know might even continue down, down the line. I'd also like to thank all the residents uh, you know, because they are really the frontline people right now. I know it's very tough not being in the operating room, but it, it is really appreciated. And you are truly all our heroes right now, too. Getting back onto that and, you know, for uh, references on talking about COVID in semen in particular, and you can also expand it into COVID into, or SARS-CoV-2 as it's properly called, into testicular tissue. They actually, on my website, which I'll give you the, the reference to, it's brucegilbertmd.com. I have two blogs that actually reference the, the literature right off, right off the press. Um, in tissue and in semen, the bottom line is probably does not have uh, you know, much of an impact right now. But that being said, we don't know. Uh, in semen in particular, there was a very, very limited study that was done uh, recently and they could not detect it. Although a lot of uh, viral particles are found in semen, the question is, if it's found in semen, what does it mean? Is it transmitted you know, through relations uh, to the partner? Does it integrate into the, the gamete and does it cause any long-term effect? We really don't know that. So getting back to the question you asked originally, Gina, is what do we do here? Well, we've actually purchased a new quarantine tank. We require all our patients that are uh, undergoing cryopreservation to have um, a viral test. Uh, if they're negative, they can go into our regular uh, storage uh, doers. If not, then they're kept in quarantine until, quite frankly, we know what to do. So right now we don't have access to testing the specimens themselves. Uh, as soon as that's available, that's what that quarantine tank is for. We will, we will test each specimen and then we'll need more guidance onto what do we do from there? What do we do with these specimens? What do we advise our patients? So it's an evolving uh, situation right now and we really don't know, but uh, that's what we're doing you know, here. Yeah. Well, thanks for that insight. Um, and with that, I'll invite you to uh, start your lecture. Thank you so much. Uh, there are some marks on the screen. I don't know, you may have uh, accidentally done it. Just uh, erase those. Well, so. we'll take care of that. Thank you so much. Well, this morning I thought I'd do something a little different. I know you've been getting a lot of surgical talks. Uh, Dr. Mulhall gave a great talk on testosterone. Um, I've always been interested in the laboratory aspect of urology. Uh, two, two areas, semen analysis, microscopic urine analysis, are areas that are not often well covered. And I thought I'd spend some time today to talk about these, uh, to talk about microscopic urinalysis, and in particular, make, make it relevant to the clinical urologist. Uh, let me just go down. Uh, disclosures, there are really no disclosures for this talk. So why is this important? First of all, 
a lot of times you could localize the site of a pathology. So, you know, we're, we're doing your analysis uh, in the laboratory many times. It's really gotten away from the clinics. I know in uh, private offices, it's done all the time. So we are able to help with the diagnosis of our patient by looking at the urinary sediment. You could localize the site of pathology. Now, many of you know the difference between dysmorphic erythrocytes and isomorphic erythrocytes. But if you're in the, uh, if you're in the emergency room or you're in your office and you wanna be able to diagnose what's going on, you can actually look at that. And we'll talk about this in a little bit. Infection versus inflammatory process. A person comes in with a swollen testis, you didn't get your ultrasound yet, uh, but you wanna know, is there a possibility of torsion, epididymitis? You want one more piece of information. You can look at the urinary sediment. Diagnostic potential. Certainly we know that many of our patients and particularly patients that were just uh, discussed by Dr. Mulhill uh, have glycosuria, have diabetes. Well, in patients for uh, infertility, uh, and possibly we do a semen analysis and we don't see much coming out in the antegrade uh, ejaculate, they may have retrograde ejaculate, ejaculation and we're trying to find out a reason. And uh, glycosuria can give us an indication of what may be going on. And of course, you could differentiate many times by medical renal from urologic disease and particularly urinary casts are uh, important. So we're gonna be discussing the urinary sediment. We're gonna look at cells, lipids, casts, crystals, microorganisms. It's gonna be in a way a picture show, you know, for a lot of what I'm gonna be doing. I also um, will mention again at the end, but in case I forget, that um, I will be mounting this uh, presentation up to my website because at the end is name that particle. It's a little quiz which you can go through and see if you know that particle and it'll give you the answer right after. So more important, or let's say as important as looking at the urinary analysis is also being able to collect the urine sample properly. So you need to give the patient written instructions. We, we often like to look at the first urine uh, of the morning. You want to uh, tell the patient to avoid strenuous physical effort. You know, when they are jogging, there is known to be increase in red blood cells in the urine. They want to, you want to request that they wash and dry the external genitalia. If men have a foreskin, you pull it back. They pull it back before they give the sample. In women, they have to spread the labia to make sure they don't have a lot of epithelial cells coming into the urine and therefore bacteria. Collect the midstream urine. Uh, we do avoid a urine collection during menses so that the urine sample won't be contaminated at that point in time and give the patient a proper sterile urine container. Oftentimes, if you ask them to bring in a, a, a container, they may not bring in a container that has <clears throat> been properly cleaned uh, or still contains some toxic su substances. As I said, the first morning urine is often preferred. We wanna be able to centrifuge. Now, if you're in the emergency department and you're doing this yourself, you have to know, how do I do it? You take a 10 milliliter aliquot, you spin it for 10 minutes at 400 Gs, and you can calculate the Gs by an equation, but usually every machine in a laboratory will already have that calibration, so you'll know exactly what's setting. You're gonna remove 9.5 milliliters of the supernatant urine, and you're gonna resuspend the, um, the 
the little pellet that's on the bottom. You transfer it, 50 mics, to a glass cover slide, and you're going to examine it both at low power and high power magnification, so you have to know the microscope. And that's between 200 and 400 times magnification, so you have to know what the oculars and the objective are and multiply them together to be able to get the appropriate uh, magnification. And then we express the number uh, as the lowest and highest number per fields that we're looking at. We were talking about the difference between magnification, but also there's a difference in microscope. Usually for your analysis, we'll have uh, available to us a phase contrast microscope, and we'll show the differences. We also can look at polarized light. And uh, this is a, a special microscope that will be able to look at urine, particularly uh, when we have uh, you know, differences uh, in refractive index or absorbency or density. And you can see the differences in that example. So let's take a look at phase contrast versus bright field microscope. So on the left is the phase contrast, on the right is the bright field, and you can see what happens when you're using phase contrast. Certain of the elements really stand out. Uh, the particles, particularly in phase contrast, are much better seen, much uh, easier to see against the background than the bright field. And oftentimes, you're going to know that using a phase contrast microscope is going to give us the diagnosis. In lipid particles, this is, uh, this is something you could see in phase contrast, but polarized light will, will give you that Maltese cross appearance. So sometimes polarized light, if you have access to that, will be advantageous. Well, the nemesis of everyone looking in the lab is going to be the artifacts that are there. And you gotta, you got to go through a lot of samples to be able to know what the difference is. Pollen, fiber, air bubbles. These are all different artifacts that you can't confuse with cellular elements. And it takes a little experience. When you see squamous epithelial cells, these represent contamination. So you have to uh, go back to the patient and see how they, ex they, uh, they collected the sample and possibly get another sample if necessary. Particles that we're gonna be talking about now are gonna be the cells, lipids, cast crystals, and microorganisms. So, we have two different types of cells. There are those cells from the blood, which include the erythrocytes, leukocytes, and macrophages. And then the epithelial cells, which are tubular cells, transitional cells, and squamous cells. Is someone trying to say something I didn't know? No? No, no, we're okay. All questions okay. will be addressed at the end, no worries. Great, thank you. Um, so we're gonna kind of go through these uh, and, and show you what they look like. So erythrocytes, red blood cells, a frequent finding, often in greater than 50% of specimens. So AUA guidelines now are saying greater than three red blood cells per high-powered field on a properly collected urinary specimen in the absence of obvious benign cause. So, you know, if, if a woman has menses and you're going to get a, a sample, yeah, that's probably better to get her back at a different time for the urine sample. Uh, two main types, there's going to be glomerular and non-glomerular. So let's take a look at dysmorphic. Now you've heard of these you've, and you've possibly seen these, but dysmorphic, these are the cells, they have a regular shape, the size is different, they have a cell membrane uh, that may be uh, 
that, that may be opened. Uh, dysmorphic, you see in the A on the right side, you'll see dysmorphic red blood cells. And you'll see certain in that arrowhead on the right side is pointing to uh, an acanthocyte. So I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that. I always say it's, it looks like Mickey Mouse ears. If you have greater than 20% dysmorphic erythrocytes, it's suggesting an upper tract origin, greater than 20%. Now, um, the isomorphic erythrocytes, they're, they're round, spherical shape, regular contours, and they contain this green bluish cells or colorless cells due to the hemoglobin. Um, the importance, the isomorphic erythrocytes usually suggest lower urinary tract bleeding. So dysmorphic upper, uh, upper urinary tract bleeding, isomorphic lower urinary tract bleeding. Then there's this particular type of dysmorphic erythrocyte called an acanthocyte. And it's a characteristic marking for glomerular bleeding. Now, you can see it enlarged on the left-hand side. And you can see this dysmorphic ring formed uh, with vesicle-shaped protrusions. On the right, on a stained side, you can see it right in the middle. If you have greater than 5% acanthocytes for red blood cells, five acanthocytes per 100 excreted red blood cells, it's classified as glomerular hematuria, so upper, upper tract bleeding. Um, and the reason they form is probably a mechanical influence of the glomerular basement membrane. Leukocytes, the most common type that we're seeing in the uh, urine is gonna be PMNs, but also you can see eosinophils and lymphocytes. Um, inflammation of whatever cause, including immunologic disorders, uh, will give you these cells. So it's inflammation, doesn't yet tell you where. So the PMNs, what do they look like? Well, there, there are two things you wanna know, and this is always interesting. So if you look at the upper slide, you'll see large cells with the arrowheads, those are white cells. You'll see red blood cells. So when you're looking at um, a urine sediment, you wanna take a look at these cells. Usually the granular cells or the white blood cells are one and a half to two times the diameter of red blood cells. Red blood cells usually between seven and eight micrometer, micrometers and the leukocyte 12 to 15. Seven to eight, 12 to 15. For those of you that, that are used to looking at a sperm under the microscope and indeed in uh, a lot of men, sperm does get uh, into the urine very commonly, particularly in a morning sample. The head of the sperm has a length of about three to five microns and the width about two to three microns. So you can you say, well, the head of the sperm is slightly smaller than a red blood cell and the red blood cell is about uh, half the size of a white blood cell. Now, to, to look at eosinophils, you really have to stain these slides. You really can't see it, and I'll show you a better, better picture in just a little bit. White blood cells up to five per high power field are considered normal. Greater numbers generally indicate the presence of an inflammatory process with or without the appearance of bacteria, and we'll look at bacteria a little bit later. So presence of white blood cells, 
is an indication for a urine culture, even if no bacteria are seen. Now here you have a, a view over here and what you notice right away um, is that in some phase contrast, these white cells really light up and that's a key. You have all these cells about the same size and uh, under a phase contrast microscope, they light up, that's usually white cells. Eosinophils, as I said before, you can only see that granular cytoplasm if you stain it. So let's move ahead a little to tubular cells. Now, the morphology of a tubular cell is dependent upon where it's coming from, what segment it's coming from. You can see it in acute tubular necrosis as well as drug and heavy metal intoxication. So the presence of tubular cells are something that requires further evaluation. And you can see all elements of the uh, uh, segments of the, uh, the kidney, you can see have different types of cells and we'll talk about these individually. Proximal tubule cells has a large nucleus surrounded by a large granular cytoplasm. Now, you can see there are other cell types here. You might look at some dysmorphic erythrocytes. Uh, you might look at some larger cells, which might, uh, you might be white cells. I think most of these are gonna be erythrocytes, however. A distal tubular cell, smaller than the, than the proximal tubular cells, and it has less cytoplasm. So going back, proximal tubule cell, large nucleus, large amount of granular cytoplasm, distal tubule cells, smaller than the proximal tubule cells and has less cytoplasm. The collecting duct is really unique in that you have a columnar shaped cell with a basal nucleus. Very different, you know, when we go back, very different from the distal or the proximal tubule cells. You also, just for comparison, have some transitional cells. Again, they're sometimes difficult to differentiate except by size. Urinary lipids, the appearance of fatty droplets, droplets oval fat bodies. The oval fat bodies are really degenerating tubular epithelial cells that then become uh, engorged with fat droplets. We can have fatty casts, we have cholesterol crystals in the presence. The source, lipid ultrafiltration, and it's usually due to abnormal glomerular basement membrane permeability. The clinical meaning of this is that you can have marked proteinuria, and it's also present in lipid storage diseases, such as Fabry disease. Lipid droplets. They're in clusters in the center, and then they're isolated. Intracellular lipids, uh, this is one in a proximal renal tubule cell. Now, why is it proximal? When you're looking at the cell, you can also see a larger nucleus and a lot more cytoplasm. Um, oval flat body, which are macrophages or renal tubule cells, and these are gorged with lipid particles, as we were mentioning before. And they shine right out at you. Again, uh, the fatty casts, you can see under phase contrast microscopy are, are very bright. And on polarized, you have this Maltese cross type of appearance. 
they're, they're refractile. Uh, they can be present in various disorders. Uh, high urinary protein nephrotic syndrome, diabetic or lupus nephropathy, or larger scale necrosis or epithelial cell death. Casts. They're formed usually distal tubules and collecting ducts. The matrix is the tam horsefield glycoprotein. And there are different types with different clinical meanings. Whatever particle is contained in a cast comes from the kidney. So I'll mention that again. If you have a cast, whatever particle is in it, whether it be lipids, uh, it's all upper tract. Here's an erythrocyte cast. How do I know this is erythrocyte cast? Um, this, you can see all the little cells inside are all the same size. If you had a micrometer, you'd be able to measure them and they'd be about seven microns. And what does this tell you? Well, you know it comes from the kidney and bleeding into the glomerulus uh, or a tubule somewhere along the segments. Leukocyte casts. Look at the difference between an erythrocyte cast with the smaller cellular elements inside and the granular elements that are very bright in a phase contrast. And they're all equal in size. And if you measured one of them with a micrometer, what size would they be? 10 to 15 microns. These are characteristic of tubulointestitial disease and especially pyelonephritis. So if you take a urinary sediment in the emergency room of a patient with back pain, fever, uh, and a negative, uh, a negative, you know, simple CAT scan or, or sonogram for obstruction from a stone, you might be able to see some of these leukocyte casts and make the diagnosis. Epithelial casts. Now, we're not talking about squamous epithelia, of course. We're talking about the epithelial lining of the tubules, whether it be a proximal, distal, collecting duct. And this is a marker for renal tubular necrosis. Okay, so anytime you would see something like this, and this all goes back. So what type of cell is this? If you look at this, try and think. So you have a cast, you have cells that has a larger nucleus and smaller cytoplasm, that's probably distal. If it had a, a columnar, uh, columnar cell type with a basal nucleus, it might be collecting duct. If you had a larger cell with a uh, lot of cytoplasm, it may be proximal. So by looking at the cast and knowing what the cell types look like in urinary sediment, you can get an idea of what's happening. Bacterial casts, well here, bacteria. Doesn't look like a normal cell type, a proximal, a distal collecting duct, doesn't look like red cells, doesn't look like white cells, it's not very bright, but you see these little uh, areas here that either are, are cocci or they're uh, rods, I can't really tell, it looks like a rod over here. It's specific to infection of the kidney. Again, anything you see in a cast comes from the kidney. Yeast casts. These, these you'll find in immunosuppressed patients and diabetic uh, patients. Urinary crystals. There are common crystals that we see all the time. There are pathologic crystals and there are crystals due to drugs. So uric acid, typical diamond shape that we see. Presence. PK of 5.5 in an acid urine, therefore, can be a normal occurrence and does not necessarily indicate a pathologic condition. 
but you can find them in high concentrations in certain diseases. Calcium oxalate monohydrate. This is the monohydrate type of crystal. Um, so you see the monohydrate crystal, they vary in, in shape, can be oval spheres, biconcave discs, have dumbbell appearance uh, when viewed from the side. Um, they have a two-dimensional appearance and pointed extremities. So, you know, we're looking at urine oftentimes in patients with stone disease, and we may get a sense of what type of stone from the urinary sediment. Calcium oxalate dihydrate. Well, these are the typical envelope type of uh, crystals that you see. We, we know what these things look like. Oops, let's go back there again. They're frequently found in acid urine and neutral urine and occasionally alkaline. So they can be found all over. Calcium phosphate. They're colorless prisms with a pointed end. And usually they're gonna be found in alkaline urine, greater than 7.2. Triple phosphate, struvite, and magnesium ammonium phosphate. These crystals can be present in neutral and alkaline urines. So when we're looking at these, uh, these are simply you know, found often in just normal urine. But you certainly, if you're suspecting someone uh, with struvite stones, you might find these in abundance in the urine. So, Crystals are formed by transient supersaturation of the urine. It could be by dehydration, changes in urine pH, or temperature. When they are persistent, they also may be associated with metabolic disorders, as we know. So acute urate nephropathy, uric acid, ethylene glycol poisoning, calcium oxalate monohydrate. Those are important to note if you have a lot of these crystals, the crystals are in abundance, you can actually diagnose different uh, situations, illnesses. The pathologic crystals we'll go over a little bit is gonna be cholesterol, cysteine, leucine, tyrosine, and uh, we'll probably not talk about dihydroxyadenine. Cholesterol, large, flat, transparent plates, notched corners, and they're soluble if you took them out and able to take the urine, sometimes you can, you can do this, uh, in chloroform, ether, and hot alcohol. It, it, what does it mean when you have these cholesterol uh, crystals that you have excessive tissue breakdown? Cysteine, unlike uric acid, which uh, you, can, you can see in uh, polarized light, uh, which polarizes light, just like calcium carbonate, triple phosphate, cholesterol, and uh, you know, some contrast media that gets into the urine. They don't, and uh, they have these hexagonal plates, and you can see it in two different ways, in the two different uh, images here. Drugs in, in the urine give, give unusual crystals. The bottom line is, if, if you have an unusual crystal, you don't know what it is, you can suspect drugs, you can take a look in the, uh, in the uh, different monographs that are available in the lab. So favoring what favors these drug crystal urea, drug overdose, dehydration, 
hypoalbuminemia, renal functional impairment, and urinary pH. Clinical manifestations of drug crystal ureta, isolated and asymptomatic, hematuria, plus or minus uh, leukocyturia, and obstructive uropathy due to drug stones. Acute renal failure uh, due to the intratubular precipitation of crystals. So these are all things that can occur when you have uh, drug crystal urea. Think of a drug whenever you come across crystals with an unusual appearance. Ask the patient if and which drugs he or she may be taking. Check the renal function and hydrate the patient uh, and reduction or discontinuation of any drugs that they may be on to prevent acute renal failure. Because the next things you're gonna get are gonna be uh, tubule casts and tubular elements and inflammatory cells. Microorganisms, bacteria, we have rods and cocci, yeast like in that we see in candida, protozoa, trichomonas, parasites. You know, when you have bacteria, and on the left you'll see some uh, rods, rod-shaped bacteria, usually you're going to see it in the presence of white blood cells. Again, why are these right, white blood cells? They're all of the same size. If you had a micrometer to, to measure them, they'd be 10 to 15 microns in size. On the right inset, again, white blood cells. You see a little crystal, envelope size. What kind of crystal would that be? Think about it. And then we have cocci in chains. Now, it's unusual to see parasites and probably, you know, when you see them, you may not uh, know what they are. So that's why in every lab, there is always a monograph that you can take a look at the various elements in the urinary sediment and compare it. So in conclusions to this part, the urinary sediment examination is important in the management of the urologic patient in a wide range of clinical situations. The urinalysis is an often neglected tool that can provide irreplaceable clinical information. And we as urologists need to be comfortable in evaluating the urinary sediment to provide really great care to our patients. And we'll see this all the time, whether you're in the emergency department, whether you're in your uh, office, uh, the clinics, uh, we'll always need to look at the urine and we can really help our patients out by um, by being able to know what the urinary sediment looks like and what it means. So I have some time. I could take questions right now, or I can go on to um, the uh, name that particle portion of this. Gina? Um, you, I, I think you can go on to the name that particle. Just um, unfortunately, there's no method of, of audience response. So it's gonna probably be more of a rhetorical type of exchange, if that's okay with you. Not a problem. We'll, we'll do that. So, so we have a spun urine, phase contrast microscope. Think about it for a second. Okay, so we're looking at this cell over here. What do we have? Well, usually we see a round cell. If I told you it was five to seven microns in size and it had these two protrusions, Yes, that would be an acanthocyte, as we looked at before. Usually you're gonna see several of them and you certainly will see some isomorphic red blood cells in addition 
but the uh, presence of more than 500 excreted red cells is significant and tells us about upper tract injury. So we have some cells over here. We have a spun urine, a phase contrast. So you're looking at this cell with the arrowhead or the uh, lightning bolt. You see that these cells are all about the same size. They light up. And there also is some other stuff in the field over here. It's granular and it lights up with phase contrast. So what do you think it is? Yes, it's leukocytes. And again, you could see them in all different ways. And if you stained it, you stained it, you see polymorphonuclear uh, leukocytes. Um, here's another one. Okay, so we have a phase contrast spun urine. We're looking at these cells and particularly we're looking at the one with the red arrowhead in the center. So it's a round cell. Gee, it looks larger than what I probably would say would be red blood cells. It has some cytoplasm and a larger nucleus. So what do you think it is? Proximal tubule cell for those that got it. Again, large nucleus surrounded by a large granular cytoplasm. And the morphology, as we said, uh, goes right down along the, uh, the length of the nephron. Certainly the cells in the proximal tubule are what we just saw. It, it's a larger cell, light of cytoplasm, large nucleus. Distal collecting cell has a smaller cell with a less of a cytoplasm. And then collecting duct cell is a columnar cell with a basal nucleus. Clinical meeting, acute tubular necrosis, interstitial nephritis, glomerular diseases. It indicates renal tubular damage. So it's, it's really an essential component to our tool case to be able to um, you know, differentiate whether it's, a, whether it's a tubular epithelial cell or not. So here we have something over here. What does it look like? So it's bright has a lot of cells inside. They light up. Uh, if we said they're about 10 to 15 micrometers in size, what would it be? Yes, a leukocyte cast. So it's characteristic of tubulo interstitial disease, especially pilo. It's a, it's a key cast type to note, especially in your patient that you're taking care of emergently. So we have some crystals over here. This is a classic crystal. One of those that they like to uh, test us on all the time. It looks like an envelope. So what type of crystal? Yes, calcium oxalate dihydrate versus the monohydrate crystals. Unspun urine again. These are unusual crystals, but they can be, they can be found in someone uh, with a uh, large stone that may be infected to struvite. Um, they're colorless for the most part. They can, they can take on different forms. In addition, uh, yes, they're, they're oftentimes found with other types of crystals. This is a phase contrast unspun urine. What do you think you see over here? Take a look at it, amorphous debris. What does it look like? 
So it could be fine granular material without any defining shape. It's amorphous crystals. Uh, it, it could be amorphous urates or phosphates. Usually they're mostly phosphates. Uh, we'll, they tend to form the alkaline urine. So if we have an alkaline urine, we'll, we'll have that. Uh, these tend to form the sodium, potassium, magnesium, and calcium salts, the urates, uh, form in an acid urine. But they're amorphous crystals. Here's another one, another common crystal that we'll see in urine, uh, particularly uh, we'll see it a lot in acid urine, as we talked about before. Uh, it can be normal in that, the diamond-shaped uric acid crystals. Again, what is this? This is something that we all should know. It, it's a very large cell. It has a, a small pycnotic type of nucleus uh, centered for the most part. If we see the presence of it, these are squamous epithelial cells, and the significance is really telling us that there's probably contamination, that the genitalia were not um, cleaned properly, and that we're getting contamination. So if we sent this specimen out for a culture, it would most likely be positive. Here's another one, phase contrast spun urine. What do we have over here? They're all equal in size. You can see some over here. Uh, what do you think they are? Yes, isomorphic erythrocytes. What does it mean? It usually means lower urinary tract bleeding. More than three per high-powered field. So we want to work that up. Okay, so I'm going to go back and see if there are any questions. That's yeah. what I want to cover today. Sure. Um, one question I had was, you know, a lot of these parameters, particularly involving the shapes of red blood cells or, um, you know, morphologic components are not specifically commented on, um, on a routine urine analysis and microscopy. Do you, do you have a certain protocol with your laboratory or do you routinely review certain specimens yourself under the microscope? Oh, absolutely. Every, every, uh, every specimen in a, in, in a routine laboratory, uh, some of this is automated and some of it is done, you know, by a, a technical person. The technical person has to comment out on, uh, you know, at least they're going through at least 50 fields uh, under the microscope. This is both low power and high power. If they see nothing at all, they spin it down and then take the, uh, the little pellet and, uh, then take a portion of that and look at it. So it's both spun and unspun urine because you have to look at both of them. Uh, you comment out on everything that you see. Uh, anything that you, um, that you look at and you do not see uh, more than one per, let's say, 50 fields that we're looking at does not need to be reported out uh, unless, it's an unusual, unless it's a crystal. I'm, I'm talking about uh, debris, uh, things that are artifacts. Uh, those you, you don't report out. But anything we see, it's usually per high-powered field, and it has to be averaged. And we usually are, are looking at a minimum of 50. Most times, if there's nothing there, you're going to 200 uh, different fields. Do we have any information on, like, this sensitivity or specificity finding certain crystals in the urine, like calcium oxalate, monohydrate, dihydrate, et cetera, and whether that correlates to stone disease or having non-obstructing stones? Uh, not that I know of. 
Can you speak a little bit about um, the method of collection? Um, for instance, are these mostly clean catch, midstream samples that you're obtaining? Do you routinely get catheterized samples in certain scenarios? Yeah, most of the urine specimens I'm talking about is the routine uh, urine collection. Uh, usually, you know, as, as we have on this slide, it's the, usually the first or second urine of the morning. Uh, it's usually uh, the patient is given information on coming in for a urinalysis of what they need to do prior to giving the urinalysis by avoiding strenuous physical activity. Uh, when they give the sa sample, we actually have a written sheet, which they follow uh, to uh, clean the area appropriately and then give a midstream uh, specimen into uh, you know, a proper uh, container. Uh, catheterized specimens are, are a different, different bag. We're not talking about them, uh, you know, right now. It's really, uh, you know, a, a specimen that's given directly from the patient, by the patient. Um, and one question from the member of the audience regarding urine cytology. Do you have any pearls of wisdom about the interpretation of that? Um... Well, urine cytology, you know, most, most of the time, it, you know, the AUA and going back to uh, the guidelines on that, uh, greater than, you know, one red blood cell per high power, I'm sorry, three red blood cells per high power field in a properly collected urine. Um, I think I have it. Yeah, here it is. Greater than three properly collected urinary specimen. You know, usually uh, you're going to find that if you have five red blood cells by high power field, the uh, sensitivity of doing a cytology is not going to be that great unless you're, you know, trying to, uh, you know, in, in looking at cellular elements over here, transitional cells, you're not going to see, you know, in a specimen like this. Um, it, it, I don't look at that. My, you know, my lab, laboratory doesn't look at that either. Uh, so it's not something I have a great amount of experience in. Okay, yes, great, yes. Um, according to the microscopic hematuria guidelines of more than three red blood cells per halopired feared, cytology is not routinely recommended, but as you're pointing out, um, recommended in, in cases of uh, appropriate clinical suspicions, such as someone with a smoking history.